think I'm going to address that, um, and I can't remember offhand, but when we get to that, because we'll, we'll get to that, then why don't we talk through that? So just, you know, you're, are you leaving early? Am I going to offend you again today? Okay. So uh, if, if, you know, just give me a, I don't know, whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> See, all the, all the older people are like, oh, yeah, and all the younger people are like, what's that? Paul Newman, he was cute. So was Robert Redford. Uh, anyway, uh, um, I'll, I'll uh, try to address that when, when we get to that. Any other questions? No other questions. Okay, so we have Hebrews 10 this week. We have Hebrews 11 yay, next week. Uh, not They're all yay. Uh, and then originally the study went an extra week, um, and so it was Hebrews 12 and then Hebrews 13. But then they cut it back a week, so now it's Hebrews 12 and 13 in one week. So just to warn you, that's a long week in your lesson. That's a long lesson because it's essentially two, two lessons compacted to, to one. Um, and if I have trouble getting through 18 verses in a lecture, I'm really going to have trouble with two chapters. So my plan is really just to teach Hebrews 12 and kind of give you an overview of Hebrews 13, but not go into depth. So I want to warn, I'll try to remember to warn you about that again next week. Um, and I, I hate to do that. It's not like any part of Scripture is uh, less important than another part of Scripture. But um, Hebrews 12 is so rich. It's the, the chapter that begins, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race set before us. So it is so rich um, that, just like all of Hebrews is, that I want to make sure that we don't miss that or I try and rush through that. So that's the plan. I believe there's some talk about uh, it'll just be us mostly that week, so we won't have a community time, so you'll go directly to your small groups. Uh, and so we should end earlier. Um, and there's talk of having lunch together afterward here, um, maybe bringing your own lunch or um, you know, potluck kind of thing or something. So we'll talk more about that next week, but uh, keep that in mind. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for this uh, time in your word. Father, I pray that you would, um, you would bless uh, my words today, Father, that you would be in them, Father, that, um, that I would be faithful in teaching what you have to say today, Father, and that we would all be ready and willing and open to hear your word today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we need to go back. We didn't finish chapter 9. Uh, we need to, Lord willing, we'll be on track after today. Um, but uh, I wanted to give you a little context. I know we already read Hebrews 13 through 15, but because Hebrews 13 through the end of the chapter, Hebrews 10, uh, 9, 13 through the end of the chapter, is helping us understand why Jesus had to die, I wanted to back up and start with Hebrews 13, give you a little bit of context. So Hebrews 9, 13 through 15 says this, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 
For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus' death accomplished what animal sacrifice never could. He is our mediator in a way that bulls and goats never could be. And what he accomplished is complete eternal redemption on our behalf, in which we are set free to serve God. So atonement under the old system, under the old covenant, was temporary, but the atonement of Christ is eternal. Because of this, our author says, Jesus is our mediator between us and God. Now he's going to go on and talk about wills and covenants. Julie's back there sweating. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll read that in a minute, but here's the word. Here's the deal. The key to understanding this section is that word diatheke or something like that. Um, which in this passage is translated will. But everywhere else in Scripture, and I think pretty much in Old Testament or New Testament Greek, is translated covenant. And in all likelihood, it means covenant here. Well, then why do they translate it will? The reason they translated it will is in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. So that makes sense, doesn't it? If you take it in isolation, well, yeah, duh, a will doesn't take effect until somebody dies. And so to the, to the uh, translators, that made more sense because it didn't seem to make sense that in the case of a covenant, you have to prove the death of one. But what if the death is the substitutionary death of bulls and goats and the substitutionary death of Jesus. Then it does make sense. And so I believe that, that in this passage, uh, even though it makes it harder to understand in a sense, that what is being referred to here is the covenant, the old covenant and the new covenant. So let's read it this way then. In the case of a covenant, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a covenant is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what the author is telling us here is why Jesus had to die. In order to ratify a covenant, there has to be a death. In order for this covenant in Christ's blood to be made effective, Jesus had to die. Uh, the, the general point of this passage actually is, is probably uh, explained by Dr. William Lane better than anyone else. He's kind of written the commentary on Hebrews. Um, 
the reason I didn't use Dr. William Lane's commentary is, is it's in two like 700 page books. Yeah, yeah, so I read a lot about it, didn't actually read it. And this is what Dr. Lane, this thing's not working at all today. Uh, this is what Dr. Lane says. He says, these verses explain why Christ had to die in order to become the priestly mediator of a new covenant. The ratification of a covenant required the presentation of sacrificial blood. Such blood is obtained only by means of death. Christ's death was the means of providing the blood of the new covenant. His sacrificial death ratified or made legally valid the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So it was the only way Jesus' death, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, was the only way for us to be eternally redeemed. So in order for us to be redeemed, Jesus had to die. So then in verses... Um, 23 through 28, the author is going to tell us how that is an eternally effective sacrifice. That once-for-all offering is an eternally effective sacrifice. So that's too far. Thank you very much. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer... Oh, wait, no, we go back one more. Because that's 26. Thank you very much. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. Okay, why would heavenly things need to be purified? What is being purified is us, so that we can live in heaven. I know it's a weird way of saying it, but that's what it means. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way high priest, the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting, awaiting him. So... The, the author's point here, and I know this is a complicated passage and we're not going to spend much time on it, but his point is that Jesus' sacrifice was eternally effective. Jesus only had to die once. In fact, you can only die once unless you do the whole near-death thing, but we're not going to talk about that. You really, truly, can. he could only die once. He only needed to die once. He died once for all to pardon us from sin completely. He died in our place so that we might live and reign with him in the true tabernacle in heaven. How glorious is that? And our author reminds us that he will return someday to fully consummate, to completely consummate our salvation. Our salvation has a present fact to it. We have been saved and yet the complete, our complete salvation, the fullness of salvation awaits us in heaven where there is no more pain or death or dying anymore. So now we move on in chapter 10 to the culmination of, um, of this, this great exposi exposition he has been giving since chapter 4 of Jesus as our great high priest. And the, and the bulk of Hebrews 4, chapter uh, verse 14, to Hebrews 10, 18 
is this exposition of Jesus as our great high priest. And so I thought it would be good just to back up a little bit and look at that exposition as it kind of went through, as he kind of went through it, the points he was making. The first point our author made actually in chapter 1 was that Jesus is superior to the angels. However, he was made a little lower than the angels for a time. He came down incarnate on earth. He identified with humanity. Therefore, because of that, God appointed him as our great high priest. He had to be human in order to represent humanity. So he, the uncreated one, who is higher than the angels for a time was made a little lower than the angels so that he might become our great high priest. And he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which in chapter 5 and chapter 7 our author goes into great detail about. But he explains how that order of Melchizedek is actually superior to the Levitical priests. That Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, whose descendant was Levi, and therefore his priesthood was superior to the Levitical priests. Therefore Jesus' priesthood is su superior. Jesus presented a superior offering, our author tells us in chapter 8. His offering was his own blood as opposed to the blood of bulls and goats. In chapter 9, we learn that Jesus has a superior ministry. He ministers in heaven rather than on earth as those who uh, were Levitical priests. He lives forever as opposed to the Levitical priests who died and then their service was over. All of which means he inaugurated, Jesus inaugurated a superior covenant, which the author talks about in chapter 8. And then the final point he's going to make as he wraps up this argument, this, this exposition, is that Jesus died once for all. Now he's already mentioned that, but he's going to really drive that home in these 18 verses. He's also going to pull in, and I wish we had time, but, but just as I read these verses, think about all the different things from the previous exposition that he is pulling in here. He's really tying a bow nicely on this entire exposition. So he's gonna begin in the first four verses to talk about the limited abilities of the law, what the law could not do in uh, chapter 10, verses one through four. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he begins by calling uh, the, the old covenant a shadow of reality. Now he used the same sort of terminology about the earthly tabernacle and there it meant that the earthly tabernacle was a shadowy copy of the heavenly reality. He isn't so much here calling the law and the Levitical system a shadowy copy of Jesus' covenant, as he is saying it was a foreshadowing of Christ, his sacrifice, and of all the blessings that were to come, all the blessings that it would achieve 
that the Levitical system could not. Um, those blessings from Jeremiah, all those blessings that Jeremiah 31 prophesies about, that I will be their God and they will be my people. I will write my law in their minds and on their hearts and I will forgive their sins. The Levitical system could do none of that, but it did foreshadow what was to come, the sacrifice of Jesus that would achieve all of those things in Jeremiah 31. Now, from the Old Covenant perspective, from those standing on the, on the other side of Jesus, those promises lay in the future. For those of us who stand on this side of the covenant, they are available now, in part, but they will be fully realized when Jesus returns, when we are in heaven. And so they still have this sort of now and not yet, this still have this future component to them. Now we see this word again, perfection. They, they, by the same fact, uh, sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, they could not make perfect those who draw near to worship. Again, that word is a form of the, of the word teleos, and it does not mean without flaw. It does not mean sinless. It means to be made whole or to be made complete. It means a right relationship with God. It means the wholeness for which we were created. And the old covenant system couldn't do that. They couldn't make us complete. They couldn't make us fit for a relationship with God. They could never achieve that. Therefore, a better system was needed in order for that to happen, in order for God to provide for us what he desired to provide. All that that system really accomplished was to be a constant reminder of sin for the people, that they were separated from God. Now, this drawing over here is what happens when you forget to put a picture of the tabernacle up on the PowerPoint, <laughs> and you have no artistic ability. So you see over here uh, roughly the tabernacle, and you see the outer court with Joe Rabin Rabinowitz standing there, not very happy, because that's where the sacrifices took place. But the holy place, he could not enter. Only priests could. The most holy place, with the curtain there in front of it, um, could only be entered once a year by the high priest. So Joe Rabinowitz there and all of the other Joes in, in the community and Josephinas in the community were literally separated from the presence of God by that holy place and by that curtain. They could not draw near to God. And so all those sacrifices did was remind them that their sin separated them from God. And it did. And so did ours, apart from Christ. Christ has come so that separation is no longer there, and we may draw near. Here's the problem, ladies. Too many of us live like we're Joe Rabinowitz. We think that God doesn't accept us. God can't forgive us. If you knew what I had done, you think, ladies, if you knew what I have done. And we don't see ourselves as we are in Christ. And when we do that, when we see ourselves as that guy instead of who we truly are in Christ, we erect our own barrier. We create a barrier that Christ died to remove. And, and we, we are unable to draw near to God. We refuse, maybe is a better way to put it, to draw near to God because he couldn't want me. 
If you knew what I'd done. No, Jesus died the perfect substitutionary death so that we might draw near to God, so that access to God, that barrier to God was removed. And we are now free to draw near with confidence, with boldness. Live what you are. Become what you are is what Paul would often say. Who you are in Christ. Um, Now that's all I'll say. Christ died to remove that barrier. Why would we rebuild it? So then in in verses 5 through 10, uh, the author is going to talk about how the the, uh, sacrifice of Christ is superior. He begins with this word, therefore, which uh, I always make you, no, not always, but almost always make you uh, talk about when we get there. Thank you. Therefore, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in your scroll. I have come to do your will. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. Jesus is speaking in both of these, by the way. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he begins with this word, therefore. So what our author is saying is because the Levitical sacrifices were not effective, Jesus came to set things right to remove that barrier. And he talks about that using Psalm 40, verses 7 through 9, uh, and puts those words on the lips of Jesus, saying this is a messianic psalm originally written by David, but... Uh, but really pointing to Jesus. And it makes two, it, it sets forth two ideas, it makes two points. The first is God's dissatisfaction with the Levitical sacrifices. So they were not effective, therefore God was dissatisfied with them. They did not accomplish what God desired to accomplish. And I should say, it's not that God thought they would and they didn't, that was always his plan of redemption was to use, you hear something? I hear something. Uh, Was to use those uh, sacrifices to foreshadow Jesus. Um, And then the second uh, idea that it sets forth is Jesus' willing obedience to God. His obedience to God's will. The primary point that our author is making here is that In willingly submitting to God's will for him, and and I want to remind you that that Jesus said, I believe in the Gospel of John, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, okay? So Jesus died willingly by his own free will. So in willingly submitting to God's will for him to be a full and final sacrifice for sin, Jesus and his covenant have replaced the old system of animal sacrifice. Or in the author's words, the old system has been set aside for the new one. And then in verses 11 through 14, our author is going to contrast 
um, the Levitical system with Jesus very, very sharply. He says day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the finality of Christ's sacrifice, that it was a one time, only needed to be done one time, is set forth in these contrasts, these four contrasts with the Levitical priests. And those contrasts are that the Levitical priests, were uh, their, their sacrifices were daily. It had to be done every day. Versus Christ's sacrifice, which was one sacrifice for all time, meaning it completely wiped out sin for all time in both directions. So instead of dealing with sin day after day after day after day, he dealt with it once for all and for all time. The second contrast is that the, the, the priests were standing, always stood, never sat down, because they were never done. Jesus, when he was done, sat down. Uh, the third contrast is that there were multiple sacrifices offered again and again versus Jesus who offered one full and final sacrifice. And finally, you had the Levitical system that could not take away sins, could not remove sins, and the sacrifice of Jesus that accomplished the perfection of those for whom the sacrifice was offered. Now, he also talks about Jesus making, Jesus uh, awaiting his enemies to be made a footstool, which is an allusion again to Psalm 110, verse 1, which we've seen twice before in Hebrews. In chapter 1, our author used that verse to highlight Jesus' exaltation, that he has been exalted to the right hand of God. Um, and that he awaits his, um, his enemies becoming a footstool. In chapter 8, he used that same verse to, uh, to highlight Jesus' superior heavenly service, that he is in heaven serving. Now he brings that same verse back again to demonstrate the finality of Jesus' sacrifice, that he sat down. He completed the task. It never needs to be repeated. Indeed, it cannot. So in verse 14, which is a little bit difficult to understand, the, what the author is talking about is the effect of Christ's work, the effect it has on those who believe. And he says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect, same word, forever, those who are be, being made holy. Again, that word perfect, it's actually the perfect tense of that word teleos, and it, a perfect tense is a past action that has present results, that continues on, something that happened in the past that continues on. And again, the, by, by the death of Jesus, we have been made whole. We have been made complete. Christ has suited us, had, has made possible a Jeremiah 31 relationship with the Father. So he has made us perfect in the sense that he has made us whole in himself. 
and given us a right relationship with God. And those are, those are they who are being made holy. What does that mean, who are being made holy? There are two possibilities here. Some theologians believe that he's talking about the process of sanctification, that ongoing process by which we become more like Jesus. So we become um, believers in Christ, and from then until we die, he who, who, has, who, he who has began a good work in you, Paul says, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we continue on to become more like Christ. And that is possible, that that is what he means. However, the author seems to be referencing something that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so here, I think, he's likely referencing, again, the cleansing, uh, our cleansing of sin by Christ on the cross, accomplished by the cross of Jesus, the cleansing of our sin. Um, this is how George Guthrie puts it. He says, our cleansing by the sacrifice of Christ is the means by which we are made perfect, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely adequate, for a relationship with God. So by the cleansing of our sin through Jesus on the cross, we have been made perfect. We have been made able to have a right relationship with God. That's what verse 14, I think, is saying. Uh, in verses 15 through 18, he reflects... Oh, I had that on there. Sorry. Um, verses 15 through 18 reflects on this new covenant uh, bringing back into uh, view... Uh, the verses from Jeremiah, some of the verses from Jeremiah 31. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So he brings back into view Jeremiah 31 and tells us that Jesus provided not only the means for our perfection, the means for our forgiveness, the means for us to enter into a right relationship with God, or as Paul would put it, that we have been reconciled to God through him. He also provides the means for our sanctification, not just our salvation, but our sanctification. As God writes his laws in our minds and on our hearts, we become more like Jesus all of which renders any other sacrifice obsolete and unnecessary. See, ladies, our problem, actually we've got a couple of them, sin and separation from God, or sin which separates us from God. Apart from Christ, that is the state of everyone who has ever lived. Our sin separates us from God. Jesus is the answer to that problem. Indeed, he is the only answer to that problem. No other solution exists. There is no other source of redemption. Well, I'd just like to take a minute, two minutes maybe, and reflect. I, I love this whole 18 verses. Um, I, I think it's tremendously powerful. And I'd just like to take a minute to reflect on this great central section and especially these last verses of it. Jesus offers us soul-anchoring stability. 
the truth about Jesus that has been preached throughout this great central section of Hebrews is a truth on which a person may build her life. It is a place of complete stability in the chaos of life. We can know for sure who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf, as well as what that means for us now and for all eternity. Our hope is anchored in this truth, firm and secure. Let me let Dr. Guthrie say it this way. Here, even in our journeying through this life, we find a place of permanence, a place of stability in which we will always be home, for we find our rest in the presence of God himself. The second thing I'd like to, to mention about this whole exposition uh, in Hebrews is, is it reminds us that Jesus paid it all. When Jesus on that cross said, it is finished, he was saying so much more then my life is over. And he was accomplishing so much more than just handing over his spirit. Jesus accomplished completely on our behalf what could not be accomplished any other way. There was no other redemption. I've been waiting all semester to share this quote with you. It's my favorite quote from all, everything I've studied in Hebrews from the person who perhaps is my favorite scholar, not perhaps, my favorite scholar that I don't know personally. My favorite scholars I know personally, the right Reverend Dr. Tim Wiebe, my brother-in-law, Dr. Steve Stell, and someday my nephew, who will someday be Dr. William Martin Stell. Uh, this quote from Dr. Karen Jobes, who's a professor at Wheaton, just knocks my socks off. I hope it does yours, yours as well. Christ's sacrifice is the last one in contrast to the unending work of the temple priests. The temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle before it had some splendid furnishings, but there were no chairs. Day after day, the priests performed their duties in the temple. Year after year, the high priest presented blood in the Holy of Holies. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priestly work that God required was finished. The high priest took his seat, having completed the act of atonement for sins, for the sins of humankind. He sat down. There were no chairs in the temple. There were no chairs in the tabernacle because the job was never finished. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. No other sacrifice need be made. No other sacrifice can be made. He made the perfect sacrifice. So we move on then, and the rest of, of the, the book of Hebrews, this letter sermon, is going to be primarily exhortation, primarily saying, okay, based on all this, let me tell you what you do. And the first thing he's going to tell them to do is to draw near to God in verses 19 through 22. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way open to, for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest 
over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So therefore, based on everything that he has just taught us, the first thing he says is, don't be hanging out in the outer court. The curtain's been torn down. Go in. Draw near to God. So the first um, basis of being able to draw near, the reason we can draw near, is because we have confidence to enter the most holy place by, by the blood of Jesus. Actually, that word confidence um, it would probably be better translated authority or permission because of Jesus, we have the authority, we have permission to enter the most holy place. The second basis is because we have Jesus, because we have so great a high priest over the house of God. Therefore, based on that, what are we to do? Draw near to God. How? What's the manner? With a sincere heart, with a true heart, with an honest heart. Through what? What is the means? Having been sprinkled, um, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and secondly, having our bodies washed with pure water. We are able to enter a new, because of that, we are able to enter a new and living way. By new, our author means one that was previously unavailable. It is new because it was unavailable before Jesus. By living, I think he's bringing in a couple of things. He's bringing in the fact that it was put into effect by the living Christ. It is a living way because Jesus is living. But it is also a living way because it is life-giving. We are given eternal life in Christ. And then he refers to the curtain, that the curtain has been torn into, that it is no longer a barrier. And that's alluding again to the veil of the temple, the curtain of the temple into the most holy place, as well as the tabernacle that was torn in two when Jesus died. The literal temple um, in Jerusalem, the veil of the temple was torn in two. So he's, what he's referencing here, the reference to Jesus' body, is just a, a kind of vivid way uh, to, um, to express his death on the cross. So he's just saying, by, by Jesus' death on the cross, we have access to God. And then both, the, uh, with, a heart, uh, let's see, with our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us and uh, to having our bodies washed with pure water, both of those are also referring to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The having our hearts sprinkled, that may make sense, but the cleansing with water brings what picture to mind? Baptism. And some theologians think that, but here's the deal. Nowhere has our author mentioned baptism. But over and over again, he has used vivid Old Testament imagery to reference the work of Christ on the cross. And so I think that this, this is, that whole thing is just a really uh, vivid way of describing the work that Christ has done for us on the cross, that he has made it possible for us to draw near to God, that he has removed the separation that existed between God and his people. The second exhortation he gives us is to hold on to hope in verse 23. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised 
is faithful. That word hold on to means keep a tight grip and do so unswervingly. That's an ongoing call. Keep holding on. And the basis for this exhortation is Christ himself, is the faithfulness of Christ. Our faithfulness is only possible because he himself is faithful. The third exhortation in verses 24 and 25 is for us to encourage one another. Let us consider, he says, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So when he says, let us consider, that word means notice or pay attention to or look closely at. It's an intentional considering. And he tells them what they must do, which is to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to love that is expressed in how we live. It is expressed in good works. And then he says what they must not do, which is give up meeting together, give up gathering together for corporate worship and teaching. Why? Why would he add that? Because loving encouragement can only be lived out in community with other believers. Encouragement cannot take place in isolation, at least not this kind of encouragement. It requires a loving, vibrant community of believers, and we are to do this from now until Christ returns. Ladies, community matters. It matters who we walk with. I can't tell you my children have heard it ad nauseum. How many times I have quoted Proverbs 13, 20 to my children, which says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. It is as we walk with one another in Christ that we become more mature. Maturity comes when we grow with other maturing believers. How many of you have seen the redwood trees uh, in, the, in the West, you've seen the word, I've, I've got a couple pictures here. Oh, go back. Yeah, aren't they huge? Look at that. Look at that little boy and that huge tree. And then you can, can you go on to the next one? And that tall tree. Huge, massive, unbelievably go, ah, kind of trees. Do you know that they have surprisingly shallow roots? How can they withstand them all of, of the, the winds and the rain. You know why? Because their roots interlock with one another. They are able to bear that weight because in this essence, they live in community with one another, with the, their interlocking roots. Dr. Guthrie says, as Christian, Christians, we need interlocking roots with other believers in the church to withstand the enormous weight of life. We need others spurring us on toward love and good deeds in a world so bent on self-centeredness and self-gratification. And I might add that we need interlocking roots in order to hold unswervingly to the hope we have in Christ. Well, then our author gives us this really harsh warning that's hard to hear. 
He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The first word of this sentence, and we've talked about before how in Greek, the first word is often put there for emphasis, is deliberately. And what the author is, is saying here, the picture he is giving is, uh, this is intentional sin. But it's more than that. It is rebellion against God and his gospel. It is rejection of Christ and his sacrifice. And it is a lifestyle that reflects this rejection and rebellion. If, therefore, one rejects Jesus, there is no other means of redemption. No other effective sacrifice for sins exists. We find forgiveness in Christ or not at all. Pretty harsh words. We're going to skip that vivid imagery so we can get done here. But then he says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the, uh, uh, the hands of a living God. That word is phoberon, fear. It, it, it connotes, it communicates an idea of terror. And again, that word phoberon is placed first in the sentence. Those who reject Christ and his provision for forgiveness will stand helpless before God's judgment, and that is a dreadful thing indeed. One of the questions that keeps people from coming to Christ more than any other question is this. What about the person in Africa who has never heard the name of Christ? You know what? Here's the deal. I'm willing to leave that up to the only person that should decide that anyway, a completely just, completely loving God. I think the question that should cause us to quake in our boots as believers in 21st century America is, is what about the person living in 21st century America who has heard the gospel over and over again and has intentionally rejected it? Because we know what scripture teaches us about that. And that should cause us to want to lovingly communicate the gospel to those people to compassionately share it in word, but especially in deed to those people who don't know Jesus. Well, our author ends with uh, encouragement, telling them to remember their past, to remember that, that they have been faithful to God before and God has been faithful to them. And so therefore they can, um, they can persevere. And then he encourages them to persevere and he knows that they will. But I'd like to end today just talking about this awesome God that we have. I'm, I referenced Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe this week, uh, the, the first book, although one of the kids that I taught this week said that actually isn't the first book. It was the first book. It's the first one he wrote. It's now no longer first in the order. But 
The last book is the last battle, and it, it talks about the last battle of Christ only in allegorical form. And in that book, there is a donkey who sets himself up to be Aslan, the great lion. And he only comes out at night by the light of the moon, so you can't really tell. And he kind of wears this lion costume, and people bow down and worship him. But he has no real power, because he's not the true God. He is not Aslan. And when Aslan comes on the scene, he's done. He's dead donkey meat, because he, he cannot stand before Aslan. Well, this is what Dr. Guthrie says about this. He says, um, oh, I got to go further. Yeah, I skipped all that. Non-gods and dead gods and donkey gods are not a threat, but a living god is another matter altogether. The living god has cosmic-sized, power-laden hands and is dreadful indeed. He will not be tamed by our postmodern repulsion for truth, nor by our aversion to the concept of judgment. We must adjust ourselves to him or face the consequences. The great foolishness of walking away from his gospel, judging Christ as insufficient, lies in this. He has no greater means for dealing with sins, and all other means are by nature inferior. We should fear our lack of grasping that reality. He is the living God, and it is a dreadful thing to fall into his hands as an enemy. Ladies, we serve a living, awesome, mighty, God. And truly, the only wise thing to do is to fall on our knees in worship before him. For he is God, and he is good, and he has provided all that we need in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just feel completely inadequate and humbled before you. You are God. You alone are God. Father, sear that into our minds and our hearts this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies.